this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with Tom Fox and Roy Kuhn. This is the first of a two-part episode, which was recorded at the SCCE, European Compliance and Ethics Institute, which was held in Prague uh, earlier uh, this month. It is a wide-ranging discussion. In part one, Roy and I take a very deep dive into the evaluation of corporate compliance document uh, issued by the Department of Justice in February. I explain why I think it is a new, inf- new information and certainly very useful to the compliance practitioner through the um, story of Plato's analogy of a cave. Roy explains why these are things the compliance profession has been talking about for uh, 20 years, and in many ways there's nothing new uh, in there. So we have an interesting debate on that. And then Roy talks about a fabulous new resource from, uh, jointly uh, prepared by the Office of Inspector General and the HCCA, the SCCE's sister organization, which is uh, gives you a roadmap to measure the effectiveness of your corporate compliance program. It is entitled Measuring Compliance Program Effectiveness, a resource guide. It was issued in March 2017. I'll link to this um, on the show notes in addition to the evaluation and some writings both Roy and I have had on the evaluation. The episode comes in at around 30 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with Tom Fox and Roy Snow. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome for another episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with Roy Snell and Tom Fox. We are on location in Prague, Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic, I should say. Sorry for that, who uh, are, uh, at the European Compliance and Ethics Institute, SCCE 2017. So, Roy, uh, welcome. Thank you, Tom. I always look forward to these. So, Roy, we've got a lot to talk about, but uh, I want to draw you a picture. I want to draw you a picture that uh, <clears throat> I'm a lawyer, very prestigious lawyer, <laughs> from one of the top law schools in America. Um, but I've been practicing law in a cave for 20 years. According to who, Tom? <laughs> and uh, I come out to find that the Department of Justice has fully revolutionized and articulated what companies need to do to have an effective compliance program. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll confess, I was, I was the guy who said that uh, some people must have been living in a cave. And I want to explain myself. It was, it was a little bit uh, too much, I suppose. Uh, the document came out, and it's about eight pages of an extremely well-written, high-level, principle-based uh, description of a compliance program and the role of the compliance officer. And I saw article after article after article written by every law firm, <coughs> excuse me, there was. And what I really should have said is it just seemed as though the in-house counsel and the outside... Don't be clicking that. No, you better take that Stop away. <laughs> you listen to these, I don't. Uh, the the uh, in-house and outside counsel um, have <clears throat> been hearing from the compliance profession and, frankly, some of their peers, like you, Tom, that compliance programs are important 
and this is what they are. And they kind of listened for the last 20 years, but they didn't seem too excited about it. And then the DOJ issues a document, and they ha have, and what one post I did, I says, as if they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's article after article after article, look at this. Must have come from a cave. Well, that's the, the comment I made that uh, probably was out of line. Is I, at one point I just said, uh, where were these people? What, what is new in this document? But we got to talk about that because you articulated some things that were new in the document. I saw what I felt was like some of the same old stuff that we've been saying for 20, 22 years. Uh, and I just said, here's, and, and by the way, here was my point. We all been telling everybody, leadership, the board, in-house outside counsel, this is what it is, this is why it's important, this is the role of the compliance officer, function of the compliance program, please help us. And we kind of get a little bit of a ho-hum response from a lot of people. And it's like, we're making ground, things are getting better over 20 years, but the DOJ writes eight pages and it's as if, you know, everybody's hair bursts into flames and this is it, boy, that's what a compliance program is. And everybody look, everybody look, everybody look. And as I told you there, people have written four page, or four, four, a series of four articles on an eight page document. And, and you talk about how much you've covered it, which is good. It's very important. This is good news. So, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, t we're talking about this in the negative a little bit that I maybe shouldn't have said where people been in a cave. It, 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 but it, I don't care. I don't, I'm not offended. I'm not trying to offend people, and I probably shouldn't have said that. But the, but the truth of the matter is, is that because some people respect what the DOJ says, a little bit more than what the compliance community says, or even their peers say, we now have some serious engagement in the fundamental principles of a compliance program. This is, this is the second most important document, I believe, that has ever been written in compliance, only second to the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines Chapter 8 from 91, something to that effect. So let me unpack this a little bit from a different perspective. <laughs> so initially when you said, was someone in a cave, I thought, you know, we probably meant that in a negative light. But, you know, as with all things, you really didn't. Because you were referring to Plato and the parable of the cave. And where the, familiar with the parable of the yeah, cave? A little bit. Okay. So uh, these people see shadows. They think they're real people because they don't know any better because they've been chained up in these caves. Um, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines is the most important document. And the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines started a journey. Yes. And they started a journey that you've been a part of for 20 years, really first generation um, in the healthcare space, and then moving to uh, a wider professional base, founding the SCCE, you and others founding the SCCE. But during that time, we've also had evolutions by the regulators. Mm -hmm. We had, yes. as, as early as 2004, we had an articulation in a uh, opinion release, 0402, that set out the elements of an effective compliance program. We obviously had uh, deferred prosecution agreements where this was set out. We had the 2012 FCPA guidance issued by the Department of Justice 
and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and now we have the 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. Um, the, everyone really has a part and a role in this, and what I see is it's not just the shadows, it's everyone moving to create the larger picture. And in many ways, the articulations that you and others made, which led to the beginnings of, of the compliance uh, profession and then integrating compliance into the business processes of companies, then became, uh, came to the attention of the Department of Justice with companies who were in enforcement actions. And the Department of Justice responded with ev ev uh, ev uh, evolving their thoughts on what best practices were in those documents and others. And so it's almost a continuous feedback loop yes. now. So you have an enforcement action, you have a company that brings a new or cutting edge technique, technology, service offering to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice incorporates that into the deferred prosecution agreement or other settlement agreement. And then uh, people like me read it and say, okay, this is the new uh, standard. And then a couple of years later, it becomes the best practice. And then maybe a year later, it's just regular compliance. And the one example recently I would point you to is in the General Cable uh, Deferred Prosecution Agreement uh, issued in uh, January, they talked about training in a new way they had not talked about previously, and they talked about tailored training, tailored down to the individual risk. And certainly we'd had discussion of training in the sentencing guidelines mm -hmm. as far back as 1992. Mm -hmm. 92? 91 maybe. 91 maybe, 92. Uh, sentencing guidelines discussed training, but now we're talking about tailored training. And that was incorporated directly into the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So I see it as a, a evolutionary process. And uh, so maybe you were right about talking about caves <laughs> because Plato told us about the parable of the caves, and that may be an appropriate parable for uh, this story as well. I have been, uh, the last month has been very interesting, very good. It's just a busy time for us. Uh, in, in the last month, I've been getting ready for a conference we had uh, before we came here to Prague. It's the HCCA's largest conference, 2,800 people. It's a lot of work to get ready for that. We're getting ready for a board meeting. I've been on the road for 10 days, uh, 10, 12, 14-hour days talking to people, and I want to ask for a do-over on the cave comment. <clears throat> or or better, better said, this is all relatively new information. It's a new document. I just want to say as simply as possible what it means to our profession. And it means, first of all, that the Department of Justice has exhibited a greater understanding of what a compliance program is than we've seen ever before. Two is, it is being heralded through articles and commentary and speeches and podcasts and blog posts by outside counsel and consultants as a really important document and, they, and they're saying it's credible, it's a credible source, and it's important. Third is, I believe, and this is a little bigger stretch because I don't have the evidence I do for outside counsel, but I believe in-house counsel is reacting the same way as outside counsel. In fact, I don't think those two groups of people react differently. They work together. So I assume that the in-house counsel is also saying, okay, I see the eight pages, I read the eight pages, 
I take it seriously because it came from the Department of Justice. And I, so, so therefore, compliance professionals all over the U.S. have outside counsel and in-house counsel who are going to pull on the rope a little harder than they did in the past because somebody that they feel is very important and they trust and listen to, the DOJ has said <clears throat> that uh, what it did in the eight pages. Uh, the only difference you and I may have, and, and, but I do want you to talk about your theory about what's new in it. I, I really, everything that, that's in it is we've been preaching for 22 years. And however... Everything old is new again? The way I would word it, Tom, and again, trying not to dig too deep a hole, is everything that we've been saying for 22 years is now being well, more well understood by more people. So the in-house counsel, the outside counsel, influence the C-suite and influence the board. Life is going to be better for compliance professionals because the 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 thing we've been saying for 22 years is 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 now deemed to be more credible. But you talked about. Let's do this though. I, this this little bit of you said something yesterday that you said it was. Uh, they, they talk about operationalizing compliance. Could you share a little bit about what you saw in that document that caused you to say that this might be new or different or a, a good description of that or why it's important? Sure. They talk about compliance being moved into the really the fabric and DNA of the company through other functions in the company. They talk about IT, HR, audit, uh, chief financial officers, certainly senior leadership, uh, a variety of other corporate disciplines that should be doing the actual compliance of an organization. And they mandated that uh, a compliance program would demonstrate how a each functional unit was a part of the design, creation, and implementation of the compliance solution. And then they had uh, specific... Um, parts of the compliance program generally based on the 10 hallmarks that each functional discipline should uh, engage in. So the things that I think we're all more, um, certainly you've talked about, more I've talked about is HR and fair process. And you have to have institutional justice. And they talked about, specifically about, <laughs> is your disciplinary uh, process fair and is your discipline consistent across the company for compliance violations? Something you've been preaching, institutional justice since I've known you, something I talk about um, in terms of the fair process doctrine, that you uh, uh, have consistency in application of your discipline and you have a fair process to arrive at that dis discipline. Uh, now we have the DOJ saying, that's not you, Mr. Compliance. You may oversee that, but that's what HR does. That's what they do day in and day out. That's called compliance. You've called it something different, but that's really compliance. Uh, I talked about the tailored training. Uh, 18 months ago, the DOJ began to talk about what's the effectiveness of your training. Well, now they're beyond that. So, and when they talked about training, they said, oh, and by the way, Mr. Compliance Officer, who does training in your company? That would be called HR. 
So <coughs> why don't you yeah. have HR uh, at least having input into yeah. this? Doesn't mean they have to be the subject matter experts, but they're the training experts. Why aren't you leaning on them for training expertise as part of your compliance program? One of the things that makes absolute sense that no one had ever said before uh, was, hey, how about payroll? You know, payroll's got a role in this because guess what? There was a line in a movie once that said, follow the money. Where does the money come from? <laughs> Who controls the money in a corporation? It's payroll. How, has pay, how have you operationalized your compliance program in payroll? Well, you do that through all the things payroll currently does. They look at who's being paid, are they entitled to being paid, where are we paying them, how are we paying them. That's what payroll does every day. Mm -hmm. And there's a specific line in there about how has your payroll operationalized compliance, your compliance program, by doing the things that payroll already does. You're not calling them compliance, but that's what they're doing. Now, most compliance officers may not have thought of that, and they certainly have not figured out a way to document that. But that's what the DOJ is saying. They're not saying go off and do something completely new and different. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're saying you can document what you're probably already doing, and that's compliance. And when people understand that, corporations understand that, uh, it's not this big, new, scary monster that I'm going to have to dump a half a million or a million dollars <laughs> on. It is taking the processes that either I should, excuse me, I have or I should have, and moving those into the business units. You, let me ask you a question. I want to I go at this same document another way. Do you think that there is resistance to implementing compliance programs in various groups of, of, of the, the typical organization? <clears throat> uh, I think there's probably uh, going to be resistance to this in outside counsel because uh, this is going to move from a legal issue to a business process issue. Uh, one, they lose that ability to control that, but two, outside counsel generally are not business process experts. They're right. legal experts. So if you're going to have anything, if you have a paper program written by lawyers for lawyers, we're very good at that. But So that would be kind of one group. When, yep. you, when you get inside the corporation, though, um, if you can communicate one, to look at your controls to see what controls you already have in place and that the compliance officer can have visibility over those uh, and satisfy the regulatory requirements. That's kind of a win-win. And when you start to think about compliance as uh, internal controls, particularly financial controls, then you start to move towards tying compliance to ROI because you've made the business process more efficient. So what I meant by my question a little bit more is let's think about the day before the document came out. <clears throat> Do you think that one of the challenges compliance professionals faced was resistance from the general counsel or outside counsel, C-suite, or the board, or any other group in the organization to implementing a fully functional, complete compliance program? Uh, I think uh, in, you know, it's going to vary from organization to organization. Yes, sir. Generally, I just want the sweeping generalization here. We'll forgive you. The sweeping generalization is it really depends on where the company is on the kind of scale of understanding what they have to do. If they don't think they're going to get caught and they don't think this is for them and they don't think that because they have good people, they're never going to pay bribes, they're not going to get it until they do pay bribes and get caught. And then <laughs> get so do you think this document? 
is going to help at all with those companies that we're waiting to be fined into being supportive? Do you? Th I think it helps tremendously because I think someone like you or me could go to the companies and say, guys, uh, this is not 100 paces past what you're doing. This is not 10 paces past what you're doing. This might be three paces past you're doing. So let me uh, ask you about your employee expense reimbursement for gift yeah. travel and entertainment. Do you, do you uh, record those for IRS purposes? Uh, yes, of course we do, because we have to do that to get our deductions. Okay. Do you ask for the amount? Do you ask where they went? Do you ask, was it a business purpose? And do you ask for the name of the person they entertained? Well, we should. <laughs> do you enforce that before it's approved? Well, we should. The point is that the only thing they may not be asking is the title of the person, which you might need, you would need to know for a FCPA anti-corruption compliance purpose. So you could track how much went to that person. Yeah. And um, so when they understand that, they go, well, we should be doing that. And if they have the internal discipline to follow their own controls, they understand this is not going to be that big of a change. I understand this now. Then we move to what are your really highest risk? Obviously, they're going to be third party, or typically they would be third parties if they don't have third parties and they use employees to make all their sales. Their employees are their highest <coughs> risk. So that's the risk you have to manage. Let's manage that one first. Then we can go through all these others. Um, I want to take us into a little bit different direction. Uh, and tell you about something we did. I tried to send you the document while I was in D.C. last week, but it didn't. I got it. Excellent. I got an email kickback that said it didn't work. And I want to go into this very carefully and slowly. The audit world, the Internal Auditors Association, the Internal Auditors Profession, have many, many different tools that they use to audit. And you talked about controls and, and there's a level of detail that the audit world gets into that is unlike any other department to check to see if things are working. <coughs> now, they probably have hundreds, if not a thousand different little questions they can ask, like your example a few minutes ago of do you look at the expense report for hints of, of uh, bribery? Um, and if you were to add up all those little questions of every risk area, like I said, it could be a thousand. Now we get chapter eight, which is a couple pages in the US Sentencing Guidelines. We have a uh, the DOJ document, which is eight pages. But we have never created a list of every conceivable question you could ask to determine the effectiveness of various elements of a compliance program. And recently, uh, HCCA, working with the OIG, brought in 30 compliance professionals from all over the country to D.C., to sit for a day, broke into four groups, 10 people per group, two elements of compliance program each, and then they rotated around all day till they got to all elements of a compliance program. 
and all 30 of these people were able to contribute ideas of things you could ask to see if something is effective. Let me give you an example. There are people who will claim that if you don't have X number of hotline calls per employee, your compliance program doesn't work. It's kind of a not, it's, it doesn't work that way. Um, it may be an indicator, but it's, it's, you could get a lot of calls and it could, there could still be corruption everywhere. You could get a few phone calls and there wouldn't be any problem anywhere. <clears throat> It's the, the typical thing is, do you have a hotline? And it's like, okay, you're effective. Everybody knows that's not true. You got to ask about a dozen little questions about that hotline. So when you break down compliance, it could be hundreds of little questions that you could ask, depending on which area you're most concerned about or interested. In hotlines, you could say, well, and it's not bad questions, this shouldn't be the only one. How many do you get? What is the percentage that you get of all employees? Have you checked 10 of them to see that they're followed up on? Have you surveyed the people that if they know the hotline number? Have you surveyed the people that think if they trust the hotline number? Um, have you done big data analysis on hotline calls to look for uh, trends or other things. So <clears throat> there's three things you could do. There's a standard, and I think, frankly, to create a standard for the compliance profession, every company is different, every compliance program is different. I think having a standard is very difficult. You might have a standard that is so generic that it would say things like have a hotline, and it would be of little utility in terms of uh, proving anything. Then there's the idea of certification against that standard. And you get a score and you get a pass or a fail. And if you pass, you get uh, something. And uh, because I think finding a single standard that will cover every nonprofit, for-profit, publicly traded company, multinational, national, every company in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and the United States, and uh, every industry Healthcare versus utilities are all different. There's just one single list of hundreds of things isn't going to apply to everyone. <clears throat> I just, I think a single standard is tough. I think a certification, therefore, is difficult. But measuring effectiveness is possible. It's three separate things. A, cert a standard is different than a certification and measuring effectiveness. <clears throat> a certification is different from a standard and measuring effectiveness and measuring effectiveness is different from a certification or a standard. They're related, but you should reject or accept each of those ideas individually because they are totally different things. So, we said... Let's bring people in from all and just happen to be healthcare, all kinds of pharma and long-term care and group practices and hospitals and small and big chains and everybody was in the room. There's a lot of diversity, and they thought of 500 of these when we did. There was a lot of de you know killing duplication. Uh, they thought of about 500 things that you could look at 
and very specific down in the detail, like my hotline example. And what would you measure? What should you look at? What should you measure? How, or how to measure? What should you look at? How would you measure it? And um, <clears throat> I theorized that even if we didn't tell them to try and make it universal for other industries, that it would end up being valuable for other industries. Right. I searched on the word healthcare, all one word, and the word healthcare, two words, in the document, 50 pages long, and I got three hits. I thought I must have screwed something up, so I searched on the word audit, and I got 255 hits. Now, to be truthful, there's other words like practitioners or clinicians or, you know, that are in there. But about, you know, maybe 10, 20 percent of it is not applicable to others or might be easily translated into whatever your practitioners are, like academic professors instead of doctors, um, and still be useful. But 80 percent of this roughly, and I really don't know, I didn't count is just universal. It will help Bjorn in Bosnia-Herzegovina, who I visited last year, <clears throat> who's trying to help his country implement compliance programs. I would suggest anybody go look at this thing. Now, we got to be careful. The document in its entirety will apply to no one. And I want to repeat that. The document in its entirety will apply to no one but it will help everyone because in this long list is your kind of industry, your kind of compliance program, your kind of culture, the way you do things, and a few of them, maybe a hundred of them might be helpful to you. <clears throat> the point is, is that we never had a list like this, what to measure and how to measure it in this level of detail. We've had the 65,000 foot, do you do education? That's like a worthless question. Do you teach the right stuff? Do the people retain it? Do you audit the area afterwards to see if they actually do what they, let's say they, do you do a post-test? That's still worthless. Is, is, the, the, the question is, maybe they can recite what you said, but do they do what you said? So. This thing drills down like nothing ever has. I, I wish people would go look at it. It's on uh, the HCCA website. It's called hcca-info.org. We'll link to it in the show notes. <clears throat> Thank you. And I will make sure that it gets on the SCCE website too. They may have already thought of that, my staff. It's very possible that people all over the world will benefit from these ideas. And again, we've gone from sweeping general questions about your compliance program to the minutiae. Don't let it concern you. Don't let it uh, uh, bother you that there are way more than you could ever use. I would suggest to people use a few of them a year. Uh, read through it. Find the areas. I worry about this. Here's a, here's a tip. Let's say you think you need more resources in an area. You grab five or ten of these questions and how, you know what to measure and how to measure in that area. You do a little test. Maybe you prove ineffectiveness. You go to the leadership and you say, I need resources here. And I, I don't just have an opinion now. I have, I have some information for you. 
Um, again, it's not a standard. It's not a certification. It could never be. It doesn't apply to anyone in the world. There's no one single organization who could use all these tips. But tips that will apply to your organization will be this. The first time we've ever dove into the detail uh, at this level. It's the first time I believe anybody. If anybody has a document like this, I'd be surprised. I think people will say, well, we put together lists. But they didn't put together this list. Right. What to measure and how to measure it. There are plenty of lists, 700 lines long, of what should be in a compliance program. We're talking about what to measure and how to measure it. I don't know where that exists, and I think this would be helpful people to people. Sorry for going on so long, Tom, but I, I just think I think it'll be big fun. Maybe down the road we'll create a new version of it that uh, will be uh, definitely all industry uh, related. <clears throat> This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, the podcast with Tom Fox and Roy Snell. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and also get the word out about this most unique podcast where I visit with SCCE President Roy Snell. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.